I want to thank Timothy for leading the song, Ancient Words. I requested that song for two reasons. First of all, I just love the song. Secondly, I believe the song expresses the things that I would like to accomplish today as we look at God's Word. And there's two things, there's two major goals that I have today. The first goal is to honor God in everything that I say. The second goal as we strive to honor God is to encourage one another. And as we look at God's ancient words today, I hope they will encourage us. I hope we have come with an open heart and we're looking for the truth that will change our lives because that's what will change our lives. And we all need change and we all need to be growing If we're not growing, folks, we're dying. And growth is a very difficult thing sometimes. But we've got to focus our attention on that, and we've got to make an effort. Because it's not just going to happen. You know, Ty didn't say it, but I'm a cotton farmer in West Texas, and that'll come out in our study today probably a time or two. But it doesn't matter what you're growing, there's some principles that come into play that are very important, and we're going to look at some of those today. We want to start here in 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5, where the Apostle Paul says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So, this is a study about self-examination. We've got to be able to be objective as we look at where we're at as a Christian, as a leader, as parents, as spouses in a marriage. We've got to be objective about the way we look at where we're at. And what we're doing is we're comparing where we're at with what, what the Scripture says we're supposed to be at. And if we are objective about how we evaluate that, then this exercise will be beneficial and will be profitable for each of us as we go through it. You know, as we think about the challenges before us, the first thing I want to mention is the fact that we've got an adversary. And he's a formidable adversary. And he has an agenda. And he's promoting his agenda relentlessly in our world and in our lives. And this is what his agenda is. The thief, Jesus said, cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And that's what he wants in your life. And that's what he's going to do in your life if you let him. But thankfully... Jesus says, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. We are they, y'all. We can have life. And we can have it abundantly. But we've got to fight this battle that's being waged in our lives on a daily basis. Now let's remember that God wants something for His children, for you and I. He wants these things. He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to be content. He wants us to be confident and strong. He wants us to be growing and productive. That's what God wants. 
And He not only wants those things, He's provided a way for us to have and to be those things. And to do that abundantly. That's what Jesus was talking about when He said you can have an abundant life. That's what He's talking about. Now in contrast to that, Satan wants these things. He wants you to be joyless. He wants you to be miserable and exhausted and discouraged and dissatisfied. That's what the devil wants. And that's what he's going to do in your life. If you don't turn it over to God and let God be the dominant factor in your life. That's what the devil's going to do. Now here's the point of all of that. In Luke 6 and verse 42, Jesus makes this observation. Either how canst thou say to thy brother, Brother, let me pull out the mote that is in thine eye. When thou thyself beholdest not the beam that is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, cast out first the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou say clearly to pull out the mote that is in thy brother's eye. Now the imagery here is dramatic, in my opinion. This person has a two-before in his eye. And he's trying to find this little speck in his brother's eye. Now, he doesn't say we don't need to help our brother with the speck. That's not what he says, is it? What he says is you get the beam out of your eye and then you can help somebody else. So when we talk about self-care today, that's what I'm talking about. That's the goal. It's not to promote ourselves. It's so that we might be of help to somebody else. You know, I don't know what they do now. In the old days, every time you got on an airplane, the stewardess, they're not stewardess, what are they? Flight attendants would stand up there and say, if the, press, if the cabin pressure drops, these masks are going to drop down so that you'll have oxygen, right? And they always said, you put the mask on first, and then if there's somebody around you that needs help, you can help them. They got that idea from Scripture. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We've got to take care of ourselves before we can help anyone else. The goal is to be able to help others. The goal is not, as I said, to promote self. But the goal is to be able, able to help other people. I lost my clicker. Now, folks, I understand we live in this world and, and, and the world is obsessed with self. It is. It's all about me. Everything's about me. It's I, 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 I. So when we think about that and we consider the world we live in, we very often think and talk about how we don't need to be focused on self. And I get that. I understand that. But I believe there's some very real danger in becoming so outwardly focused that we forget we've got a two before in our eye. 
And we've got to deal with the two before before we can help anybody else. Okay? So I want to look at some of these things that I believe are a danger. And the first one is huge, and it's pride. Pride will absolutely destroy your ability to grow. And there's all these different ways that pride manifests itself in the Christian's life. But we become arrogant about a whole lot of different things if we're not careful. Now remember, we're fighting a battle. And the devil's out there promoting this I, 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 it's all about me mentality. He absolutely is behind that. And that is where pride enters into a Christian's life. Now remember in Revelation 3 and verse 17, Jesus is talking to the church at Laodicea, I believe. It's the lukewarm church. And this is what he says about them. Because thou sayest, now now look, folks, this is the way they saw themselves. Thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's the way they saw themselves. Man, we got it together. We have got this battle won. That's the way they saw themselves. But notice how God said, saw them. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I mean, that's quite a contrast. There's a huge difference in the way they saw themselves and the way God saw them. And we've got to recognize what pride does to us. It makes us arrogant. And it makes us think that we're something that we are not. And it will absolutely destroy our ability to grow because we don't see any need for growth because we've got it all together. We've got this, these things licked. And we're blind. We got a two before in our eye and it's blinding us. Do not allow arrogance to enter into your life. And of course, you know, there's a problem, but there's also a solution identified in Scripture. Now I want us to think about Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 because there's some really important principles here. Because we need, as people, as humans, we need to have some kind of sense of self-worth. We have to have that to function and do the things that God would have us to do. But our challenge and our problem is is that we get that sense of self-worth from the wrong things. So let's notice. Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. That's one of the things we feel pretty good about ourselves if we're intelligent and able to understand things and hopefully able, able to explain things to other, we have, others. We have some wisdom. Is that where you get your sense of self-worth? Or do you use your wisdom to glorify God? Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. You know, as men, 
we tend to feel pretty good about our strength. Now, you know, as we get older, that kind of gets away from us. And it becomes a part of our reality that physical strength is no longer a part of who I am. I wished it was, but it's not. Is that why you feel good about yourself today? Let not the rich man glory in his riches. We strive frequently, say we, I don't want to throw everybody under the bus, but typically we live in the United States of America, the most prosperous country in the history of the world. And we strive to be rich. We just do. Sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. But in comparison to the rest of the world, we're all rich, aren't we? But notice what the prophet says. Let him that glorieth glory in this. Doesn't matter how smart, intelligent, or wise you are. Doesn't matter how strong you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. All of that's completely irrelevant. Makes no difference. You should glory in this. What? What should you and I glory in today? That He understandeth and knoweth me. That we know God. Not only do you and I know God, we have something that these folks didn't have when Jeremiah was walking the earth. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's what we should glory in. That's why we should have self-esteem is because God loved us enough to give us His Son to reconcile us to Him. That's what we should glory in. All of this other stuff, we should thank God that we have gifts that we can use to glorify Him. That's what we should do with our wisdom, our riches, and our strength. It's not about us. It's about Him. And don't be arrogant. I don't care what your gifts are. Don't be arrogant about them. Use them to glorify God. In 1 Peter 5, in verse 5, the apostle talks about being clothed with humility. We wear humility just like we would a suit of clothes. And it shows and the more gifted you are, the more important it is that you wear humility. That you learn to wear humility. For God resisteth the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And regardless of how gifted you are, you need grace. We all need grace. So be humble. One of the things that I, I see at times is we're arrogant about our ability to fight Satan. And Satan, as I mentioned earlier, is relentless. And you may win some battles along the way. Don't be arrogant about that because he's going to find another way to attack you. 
I'm not, I don't know, I, I guess I see myself as middle-aged. I'm not quite 60, but to my young children, I guess I seem quite elderly. But there's some temptations that I really no longer have that I had when I was a young man. But guess what? He's found other ways to attack me. And that's just the nature of life. And that's the nature of the beast. Notice in Galatians 6 and verse 1, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Okay, so we've got a situation here where a person has become overtaken with a fault. What do they need? They need restoration. That's what they need. They need to be restored in their relationship with God, right? So what does he say about that situation? He gives a job to those that are spiritual. We sometimes look at elders and say, well, that's their job, and I I think it is. But it's broader than that. Because he says, ye which are spiritual. So if you've got a spiritual perspective today, then you may have an opportunity to go restore somebody that needs help. But notice what he says to them. Considering thyself. Do you? Are you arrogant about it? Think I'm I'm not going to be subject to that temptation, this poor slob that's been overcome by it. Don't be arrogant about that. We're not immune to temptation. Remember in Proverbs 7, the wise man's talking here about a harlot. And what he says about her is the way that she approaches the young man. And I believe, I believe the Scripture describes him as an ox going to the slaughter. And we see it all the time, don't we? But here in verse 26 and verse 27, he said, For she has cast down many wounded, yea, many strong men. They were arrogant. And men are arrogant. Think, well, I'm not. No. You're, you can be tempted, and it don't matter how old you are. And how many times you've won the battle, you can be slain by temptation. This is just one. Jesus said, watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Because, why? The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So guys, girls, all of us, As long as we're in the flesh, we're subject to temptation. And we've got to remember that. And we've got to consistently fight those temptations. That's how we're going to grow. I want to talk about discouragement for a little bit. 
Discouragement is a huge challenge. It is for me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm exposing a weakness, I believe, that I have. But I know what I'm talking about. And the reason I'm talking about it is because the devil don't have to keep you out of church. He wants to keep you out of church. He wants to keep you out of this building and all of that. But he don't have to keep you out of here. All he has to do is keep you discouraged. And you won't be able to do anything worthwhile. You won't be able to lead your family. You won't be able to mother your children. You won't be able to do anything for God when you're discouraged. Now, discouragement is a part of life. And so what we've got to do is figure out a way, the right way to manage it, because we're not going to get rid of it. But we can manage it. And we can manage it in a way that glorifies God. So the first thing I want to say about discouragement is I want to draw your attention to what causes discouragement. And I I want to tell you that it's unmet expectation. That's what causes us to be discouraged. And so for us to manage discouragement, we've got to examine what our expectations of life are. Now, I believe it's in 2 Kings we have the story of Naaman. The Bible says Naaman was a mighty man of valor, but he had a problem. He had a bad problem, didn't he? He had leprosy. Now, folks, I've been to India, and I've seen what leprosy does, and it'll just, it literally eats the flesh away. It's a terrible disease. And Naaman had it. And in that time, there wasn't anything they could do about it except there was a little maid from Israel that had been carried away captive. And she said, if you'll go over there, there's a prophet in Israel that can help you. So he loaded all of his treasure up and he went over to Israel, right? With a very definite expectation. We know he had that expectation because when the prophet said, well, he didn't even go talk to him, the prophet didn't. He just sent word down to him, go wash in the River Jordan. And Naaman's response was, well, I thought, do you see my point? He had this expectation of what was going to happen And when it didn't happen that way, not only was he disappointed, he was angry. And as long as he was angry, he kept his leprosy, didn't he? But that's the way our disappointment works. We develop these expectations of what God ought to do in my life, and when it don't happen, we're angry and disappointed with God. We develop these expectations of what our marriage is supposed to be and what our spouse is supposed to do and the way they're supposed to treat us. And then when that don't happen, we're angry and disappointed with marriage. And you just go on and on and on. I mean, God ought to prosper me. I ought to be rich. 
It doesn't matter what the expectation is that when it's not met and we're disappointed, it's a challenge, isn't it? Part of our problem is this idea of comparing ourselves to others. And that's how we develop our expectations. Not the only challenge, but it's one of the challenges. And so I want want us to remember 2 Corinthians 10 and 12. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. So don't develop your expectations of life by comparing yourselves to others. That's a terrible habit to develop. You're going to be disappointed. That's not the right standard. That's not the right expectation. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Well, we know the answer to that, don't we? We know why we're different. Because God made us different. He gave us different talents, different opportunities. That was His plan. That was His intent. Take what you have and make the most of it. Don't be disappointed. And what thou, what hast thou that thou, thou didn't receive? He's saying, whatever you've got, you've got it from God. That's where it came from. Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? In other words, you, you developed the idea that you made this happen on your own. And then you're disappointed. It's not a healthy approach to life. I mentioned the fact that I'm a cotton farmer. And one of the things that kind of part of the program with if you're a cotton farmer is disappointment. Because of expectation. I expect to have this huge bumper crop every year, right? My banker expects me to have this huge bumper crop every year. And we're both disappointed some years. But we have this mentality, and it's a healthy mentality up to a point. We want to be productive. Right? And when we're not, we feel like a failure. We feel like Isaiah. Then I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for naught and in vain. And I will just tell you, growing cotton, sometimes it was for naught. It was vain. I'd have been better off just to never got that seed out of the bag. But we keep pressing forward, right? But it's hard to overcome that feeling of disappointment and feeling like a failure. 
But we've got to remember, yet surely my judgment is with the Lord and my work with my God. This is such an important principle, folks. I, I don't know if y'all grow anything. But it doesn't matter if you're growing cotton or tomatoes or flowers or a church. This principle right here is exceedingly important. I have planted, Paul says, and Apollos watered. We plant and water. We plant and water. Who's responsible for the increase? It's not us. You know, and I have this mentality that if I'll do this cotton crop just exactly right, it's going to turn out really good. And don't get me wrong, you've got to make an effort. You've got to do the planting and the watering. But at the end of it, God gives the increase. Whatever you're growing, your growth individually as a Christian, it's the same principle. You do the work, God is going to bless it. And if we could understand that and we could embrace that, to me that, that solves this idea of being discouraged by the disappointment that life brings. Keep pressing forward. Keep planting and watering. Don't ever give up. Because all disappointment is is the devil trying to keep you on the pew doing nothing. That's what that is. And remember, holding forth the word of life that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Because in 1 Corinthians 15 and 58, the apostle says, your labor in the Lord is never vain. And we look at it and we're result-oriented and we're discouraged because it didn't happen and turn out like we wanted to. But he says it's not vain. It doesn't matter how your work turns out. It's not vain. It's not worthless. But we need the immediate satisfaction of seeing results sometimes to keep going. And we've got to remember these principles that will help us overcome disappointment and discouragement. Now I want to talk about confidence for a minute. And this is a tedious thing for me because we need, we need self-confidence to function effectively in our roles in life. We need that. But our challenge is, is if we're not careful, we have more confidence than we should. Or we don't have enough confidence. It's that pendulum thing we've been talking about. You know, finding the right balance. But remember what 
Romans 2 and 19 says, and he's talking about the Jews here, and their confidence was misplaced. But he makes an observation here that I think it's important for Christians to remember. He says, And art confident that thou thyself art a, guide, art a guide of the blind. How does anybody ever get up in front of a group of people and teach God's Word? Well, you've got to have some confidence. Right? Well, of course you do. And this is what he's talking about here. You're a guide of the blind. I'm not saying y'all are blind, but I'm trying to guide you today. That's my goal. To get God's Word in front of you and guide you to a better place. And you've got to have some confidence to be able to do that in some kind of effective way. If I just get up here and mumble and held my head down and I'm just reading my sermon, how does that affect you? How does that affect your audience? You need some confidence, right? The question in the most important part of this discussion is not whether or not you have confidence, but it's where you get your confidence. So we need to remember 2 Kings 18 and verse 19 because the Bible says, and this guy, I'm not going to try to say that, but he said unto them, speaking out of Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, what confidence is this wherein thou trusteth? So that's the real question, not whether or not you should have confidence, but where does your confidence come from? And I will just tell you today, I'm, I'm confident, but I'm confident in God's Word. Because I said it in the beginning, it's what's going to change our life, and I'm confident of that. And it don't have anything to do with me. And matter of fact, my challenge is to stay out of the way of God's Word. We need to get it in front of people. But we need to get out of the way. It's not about me. And it's not about how brilliant I can be in presenting God's Word and the results that we get from putting God's Word in front of people. It's not about me and it's not about my ability other than my ability to stay out of the way. We need to be confident that God's Word and God Himself is going to do the things that God said He was going to do. That's what we need to be confident in. And it doesn't matter what your endeavors are, whether they're in church work or in raising a family or on the job. That's the truth, folks. You be confident in God because He's going to do what He said He was going to do. We can take that to the bank. In Philippians 3, verse 3, the Bible says, For we are of the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. And then he goes on here, Paul does, to talk about why he would be confident in the flesh. He had all the good stuff. He had the right genes. He had the right upbringing. He had everything. But he says, I'm not confident in the flesh. I'm confident in God and in God's Word. And that's where we need to be today as God's people. We need to be confident. But we need to make sure that confidence comes from God and not from self. 
Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. That's where the real power is, in His might. I didn't get the verse up there. I believe it's about Isaiah 55, where Isaiah says, His Word is going to do the thing that it was sent to do. That's God's Word. That's where the power is. And we need to remember that. And we need to have confidence in God's Word to do that thing that God designed it to. We'll talk about the roller coaster now. And I know... Probably some of you younger folks just love roller coasters. Well, you get a little further along in life, and this particular roller coaster I'm talking about today is the emotional roller coaster, and it absolutely wears you out. And the emotional roller coaster robs your ability to have any energy to do anything positive. And I believe the devil's behind the emotional roller coaster, and that's why I want to talk about it today, because we need to get off of it. Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the Bible says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our emotions deceive us. Our emotions sometimes lead us to places that are not healthy. Our emotions are given to us by God, and when they're managed properly, they are a great blessing to us, right? But when they become out of control, and we begin to follow our emotions, instead of following the truth we find in God's Word, we just begin a deal like this that is exhausting. And there's lots of different things that will put us on this roller coaster. Our finances put us on a roller coaster. Don't they? Things are good. We spend everything we've got. Uh-oh, now I'm in trouble. And it's just, and we see it in the world constantly. I hope that's not your finances today. But it's the world we live in. People don't make financial decisions based on what they've got. They make those decisions based on how many payments they can make. And it's just from paycheck to paycheck and then we lose our job and everything's a disaster and oh no, what am I going to do now? It's a roller coaster. Get off of it. The, the Bible gives us the instructions that we need to manage our finances in a way that will help us be productive and useful and be able to give and help others and do the things that God has given us to do. There's lots of things that put us on this roller coaster. When you're trying to help someone with a problem, we read uh, Galatians 6, 1 earlier. When you're trying to restore somebody that's struggling with a sin that they have been overcome by, it's a roller coaster. We wish you could just go put the Bible in front of them and it's all good and we fixed it and we're going to move on to the next one, right? It doesn't work that way. It's up and down. It's two steps forward and six steps back sometimes. 
We've got to be consistent and not allow our emotions to mislead us. He that hath no rule over his own spirit is like a city that is broken down and without walls. Do you see the vulnerability that he's describing here? It's what happens when we don't manage our emotions correctly. We're just an open city, open to attack. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. When we're uncommitted, we're just all over the place. That's what he's talking about here. You've got to make a decision what, what you want from your life. You can't hang on to the world and be a Christian. And that's what people try to do all the time. What can I do? What can I get by with? Instead of what can I do that I'm sure is the right path? Don't be double-minded. It's a roller coaster. We are troubled on every side, Paul says, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed. These are all things that I think you could accurately describe as emotions, but Paul says there's a limit. There's a limit. We're not going to go on that roller coaster ride. We may be troubled, but we're not going to be distressed about it. We may be perplexed, but we're not going to despair. And that's what we've got to learn to do, folks. And we have this promise in Philippians 4 and verse 6, Be careful for nothing, but in everything. Are we listening? But in everything. With prayer, or by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what's the result of that? That's a a command, y'all. He's not making a suggestion. He's not saying this might be a good idea. He's saying you do that and you're going to get this. Peace of God that passeth understanding. We want the peace, but we're unwilling to do the other. It's not going to work, is it? The peace is what will keep our hearts and minds. That's what's going to bring the stability that we want. So let's fulfill the command. So, as we kind of begin to wrap up here, first and foremost, we're Christians. But everybody in here has other responsibilities. And life is a challenge because we have to balance all of these other responsibilities. Right? We have individual responsibilities. We have to take care of ourselves. And we kind of focused on some of that this morning. How we've got to focus on those spiritual challenges that we have as an individual. You've got to do that if you want to be effective. 
and you want to be a successful Christian. We have responsibilities in marriage. And it's huge, y'all. It's the most important relationship that you have on this earth. Maybe I should say the most important human relationship you have. Don't neglect it. One of the most heartbreaking things we see is people that have been married 20, 30, 40, 50 years and they, they quit. They give up. They get a divorce. It's heartbreaking. And it don't just happen. It happens because somebody neglected the relationship. I had a neighbor... This has been four or five years ago, but he just comes home one day, and they've been married 30-something years, and he comes home one day, and his wife's gone. Well, he was just devastated. He, he had no idea. He had to have had an idea, right? I don't know. Sometimes guys are pretty clueless. But the point is, he neglected our relationship to the point that she just left. Now, I know that's probably a worldly person, but it can happen in the church too, folks. Don't neglect that relationship. I, I debated about whether or not to tell this story, but I guess I will. All of the people involved are, are past now, but... When I was a child, I was, no, 12 or 14, I had an aunt and uncle that, it was my mother's sister, and I went to spend a few days during the summer with them. And there's a couple of experiences that I want to share because it goes to the very heart of this idea of learning how to balance things. Because Regardless of whatever else happens, parents, the way you balance things, your children are going to do it exactly the same way. Now, they may eventually learn to do it better. But I'm going to tell you, starting out, your children are going to start exactly where you're at. So I had this aunt and uncle. And you know how you are when you're a child, you just think everybody operates the way we operate, right? Particularly when it's your mother's sister. Well, this was a very eye-opening experience because they didn't operate anything like my parents operated. And I don't, I don't want to say my parents did everything right. I know they didn't. I know my parents' flaws probably as well as anybody, right? And we're all flawed as parents, I get that. But when I went to stay with this aunt and uncle, there's some things I want to share with you about that experience. The first one, on Sunday, we went to church like mother and daddy did, and then they had a singing at one of the local congregations around there, and we went to that singing. And after the singing, we were in the car, and my uncle says to my aunt, do you want to go to church tonight? And my aunt said the most extraordinary thing. 
Do you know what she said? She said, no, I think we've had enough church for one day. What in the world? This is my mother's sister. Those words would never come out of my mother's mouth. Now the reason, I'm not trying to throw her under the bus. I bring that up because her children are dysfunctional. They're not in the church. and I'll just leave it there. And it wasn't because of one decision they made on a Sunday afternoon. It was because of her attitude. That's my point. I get it. I understand we're making choices every day. But parents, your kids are watching your choices and the way you balance your life and they're going to react accordingly. The other thing I want to tell you about this aunt and uncle, the other thing I learned that summer, ladies, it's a huge challenge for a man to lead his family, and that's God's plan. God's plan is for the man to lead his family. And you can either help him or you can sit and you can criticize and make fun and demean everything that he does. And my aunt was married to a good man, but guess what she did? She ruined him. Because she couldn't let him lead. Say couldn't, she wouldn't. She wouldn't let him lead. And I get it. Sometimes men do the dumbest things. We're not all born to lead. I get that. But your kids are either going to respect their father or not based on the way that you respond to his leadership. Let him lead. Help him lead. And I understand when my uncle said, would you like to go to church tonight? I understand what he was doing. But he basically just deferred and let her make that decision because he knew that if he made a different decision than she agreed with, then he was going to hear about it the rest of the day. And this wasn't, as I said, this wasn't a one-time deal. It was a pattern. And we saw it all the time. And as I said, I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus, but I learned some important lessons that summer and a lot more. But it's the only time I went. And I I don't know why. I don't know if I didn't want to go back or mother and daddy just didn't think I should. I, I don't know why. But I very distinctly remember those things. And I guess that was... 40-something years ago. Learn to balance your life appropriately. We have opportunities to grandparents sometimes, and that's a great blessing. But if you put more emphasis on that than you do these other things, you're making a mistake. We've got to balance 
You know, in Matthew 14 and verse 23, the Bible says of Jesus, when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray, and when the evening was come, he was there alone. And my point is, is sometimes you may need to be alone. I, I get that. And particularly in this illustration, Jesus was alone with God, and he craved that, didn't he? He needed that. He depended on that. The point is, the individual has some needs. Don't neglect that. Don't focus on that. Don't make your life about that, but don't neglect it. First Peter 3 and 7, Likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And this is just one verse, and I'm not going to preach you a sermon about marriage. But the point is, don't neglect that. It's important. It's very important. But if any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. And I don't believe this provision that he's talking about here is just financially, guys. That may be part of it. But we need to be providing spiritually for our own that needs to get our attention. Needs to be our attention. Again, we've got to learn to balance this stuff. We've got to learn balance. So how do we find the right balance? I haven't talked about taking care of the physical. I, I know there's an element of that in all of this. And it's brought out here in Mark 6 and verse 31. I mean, most of us could miss a meal and it wouldn't hurt a thing. Might even miss several meals without hurting much. But we eventually, you've got to take the time to have physical nourishment. You can't function if you don't, right? So there's that extreme. But the other is, we've got to just be moderate, basically, in all things. Learn to be moderate. Find the middle ground. We tend to just want to swing from one extreme to the other for whatever reason. It seems to be our nature sometimes. Find the moderation. Find the temperance. Find the balance. And finally, in, first, or in Colossians 1 and verse 10, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work. You know, at the end of our discussion, that's, that's really what we're looking for. We're looking for growth and for fruitfulness. We want to be fruitful. That's what I mean when I say productive. We're going to bear fruit for God. And if we'll take care of ourselves the way that we should, and we're objective and looking and evaluating ourselves, examining ourselves, that's how we'll get there.